Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. This is a special God pod which was recorded as part of our McDonald Lecture Series 2016. The McDonald Lecture Series is a series of lectures generously sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. We have uh, Jane Williams, who is a normal member of GodPod, myself, Graham Tomlin. And um, hello, Jane. Hello. <laughs> so so, so the, the people that people will hear, be hearing this, not seeing it, so they need to know that Jane is here. <laughs> and um, we are delighted to have Marilyn Robinson with us. And um, uh, many of you will know, uh, those of you listening to GodPod, Marilyn is well known as author of uh, Gilead, Home, Lila, a number of other wonderful novels. And um, uh, we've been listening to her. Uh, lecture on a theology for our time. And uh, we're also delighted we've got Catherine Fox here as well. Catherine is, um, uh, hello Catherine. Hello. Yes, you are there too. Um, Catherine, as you don't know, is an author, um, a lecturer at the Manchester Writing School at Manchester Metropolitan University. And her debut novel, Angels and Men, was a Sunday Times pick of the year. She's author of Benefits of Passion, Love for the Lost and Angels of Men, and a teen fantasy novel called Wolf Tide. I didn't know about that one. Well, there you go. And um, uh, her latest book, Unseen Things Above, part of the Linchester Chronicles, was published in 2015 and starting in January. She's been blogging volume three of the Lin- Linchester Chronicles, Realms of Glory. She lives in Liverpool, where her husband is dean of the cathedral and um, teaches at St. Melitus Northwest. And, um, yes, he does. He does indeed. I think he was teaching this morning, wasn't he? I think. Yes, that's right. Exactly. He teaches on Old Testament, uh, but also on John Calvin, which he's a specialist as well. So um, just to, to get into our, our discussion... Um, Marilyn, you've been talking about uh, a theology of our time, and somebody's trying to expand, expand a form of theology which is, which is bigger than we normally think. Um, and I guess within that, perhaps, is the implicit criticism that sometimes our theology is a bit too small, a bit too narrow, doesn't have that big vision of the world. Um, and I was intrigued, intrigued by that idea of a theology that has a, a big vision. I remember um, a number of years ago hearing somebody just, just come to faith as a Christian uh, as an adult, who yeah. grew up without any real faith at all. And, and the way he described the difference was he said, just the world suddenly looks bigger. That somehow faith had expanded his vision of the world. It looked a bigger place. Yeah. And colors were richer and things were more significant. And it, it had grown, grown bigger. And, um, and I, I was struck by, by a, a line, in, I think, in one of your novels. I think it's in Lila, where um, one of the characters says, the character says this, if, if there is no Lord, then things are just the way they look to us. And I, I suppose my question is about the Christian imagination and whether Christian faith does do that, expands your view of the world in a way that no other form of imagination can do. Would you go so far as to say that, that Christian imagination expands your view of the world more than any other kind does? And is there a distinction between a Christian imagination and other kinds? Well, you know, I can only speak from, um, I mean, I've been immersed in Christian society all my life. Um, I assume that that theologies in general expand the sense of of reality. And in in a certain sense, I think that's a large part of their, they dignify people by reminding them that they 
are part, a meaningful part of a, of a very huge system of being and, and a very detailed and refined system of being too, you know. Um, I certainly, for my purposes, I, whenever I think at the largest scale, I'm thinking theologically. That with, without, I would never even consider thinking otherwise actually at that scale. Catherine, is, is a, in your novels, do you think that something's true about that as well, that your Christian imagination expands your view of the world? Yes, I think it does. I think it does. And I can remember vividly reading Gilead for the first time and almost weeping with relief that it was possible to write a novel that was so theological, having been warned off by my publishers that the Church of England was, wouldn't sell novels at all. Um, and so I thank you for lighting up the way for me and other novelists who write from a position of faith. Um, so yes, I, w I would say that. And, and I think when I was starting out as a writer, I had to try and solve certain questions about how you write as a Christian. Um, should you sort of have a moral at the end? Um, or, or maybe convert everyone? Um, but my observation was that I didn't really see God necessarily doing that um, to the people around me. So, um, yes, I, I wonder, just to, to press this a little bit further, um, a new theology, whether you think there's a particular contribution that fiction can make to that. Are there things you can do in a novel that um, broaden out a theological discussion that you you would struggle to do elsewhere? Um, I think that one of the things that's wonderful about fiction is that uh, you can acknowledge the importance of lives. You know, I mean, you can draw close to someone that, you know, that attention might ordinarily pass by and realize that there's this whole rich, urgent, uh, intense life going on there, you know. I, I often joke about um, what my publisher would have said if I had approached him in the first place saying I'm going to write a book about a minister dying in Iowa in 1956, you know. <laughs> um, but I had a fair amount of it written before I let him see it, and, and he loved it, you know. But that's the thing, people think things are drugs, are dead as ideas, but they don't know how you make them live. Thank you. One of the things that strikes me about both your um, books is uh, you create characters and you don't encourage us to judge them. You encourage us to see their fullness. So uh, there are one or two characters uh, you start off thinking, I'm sure I'm not going to like this person. And actually as you get closer to them, you think, that's not the question. The question okay. is their reality, their... Um, their, their genuineness, their real humanity. And it strikes me there's a connection with that, with what you were saying about um, our ideologies that make human beings too small, that, that actually prevent us seeing um, that reality. And in a sense, um, that, that's one of the things that novels can do. Um, you can set out the theory of what happens when you look at a society that undervalues human beings. But then you can see in a novel what valuing a human being might look like. Yes, yes. 
I wonder if you could say a little bit about empathy. I know you've written a, a bit about this, and in the, your discussion with Barack Obama, he, from my point of view as a novelist, rather wonderfully said that some of the th most important things he'd learnt about being a citizen, he'd learnt from reading novels. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that kind of contribution that fiction might make. Um, you know, he's a very extraordinary man. I suppose that's not a news, but... <laughs> um, you heard it here, you heard it here first. <laughs> but um, he, he has a very intense interest in lives, you know. I mean, for ex he, one of the first conversations I had with him, he was talking about how it amazed him to look at cities and realize that they existed because thousands or millions of people did what needed to be done day after day, you know, people who, who received no special notice for it and so on. And this is, you know, a sort of devotion to the, you know, the people that do the obscurest work as much as the city planners or the politicians or anybody like that. He just, he, he's very, very strongly uh, interested in people. It, it sometimes, they can seem kind of penetrating sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, the novels are a way into that for him, I think, for anyone, uh, to think how life might, life might be lived. He says to realize that our lives are beautiful. Um, I've got a question around, around that, because I think one of the things that strikes you about your characters is you, you do, you're able to, that the, the sort of simple decency of the, of the, the, the characters, the, the, the sheer simple goodness of many of the characters you speak about. Um, and yeah, I know you, you're a great lover of John Calvin, and um, uh, I guess my, my question is, I suppose Cal Calvin or perhaps Calvinism, and there's, a certain, there's obviously a distinction between the two, uh, but he's known for a very, um, uh, at times a rather severe view of human, human nature, a very deep sense of the, the flaw in human nature, a deep sense of um, uh, the fallenness of, of human nature, and, and if... Um, the idea of total depravity doesn't mean that we're all totally depraved. It just simply means that there's, there's no part of us which is not touched in some way by, by sin. I, I, my, my question is, how, how does your, your love for Calvin and your appreciation of him and his sort of deep sense of the, 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 the brokenness of, of humankind, how does that fit with your, with your sense of the, the goodness of, 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 of humanity and what you've been expanding tonight a little bit about, uh, about that sense of dignity and, and, and strength and... and and just simple goodness in the characters you write about, but also the vision of humanity that you think, you said you were talking about, theology should expand tonight. Well, you know, um, I'm not, I mean, when I talk about how we are undervalued, it's our complexity, I think, that is perhaps most crucially undervalued, you know, um, because we're, we are our own biggest problem. You know, there is really no, we're not sort of, the victims of circumstance or something, we're up to a lot of not very good stuff an awful lot of the time. And if it's true now, you can imagine that it's probably been true right along. And I'm not, a, you know, uh, that, that word sin, you know. Um, Calvin is actually talking about doing harm to other people. 
which I think is the best definition of sin. He's not talking about fleeting thoughts that you would be embarrassed to have your neighbor know about or something like that. He is talking about the fact that people cheat people out of their wages, abuse them in one way or another, and so on. Um, he writes a lot like a minor prophet, you know, if you read his sermons and so on. But the thing about Calvin that is so amazing to me, and if you want to see where this comes from, if you look at the Institutes, I think it's in the first volume where he talks about uh, love thy neighbor and who is my neighbor, responding to these two in a kind of catechetical way. But he, uh, he sees, and this, is, this recurs through his writing, he sees other people as God, presented to you by God. He uses the word presented or given. Um, and what he means is that through the encounter with another person, you are in effect encountering God because the other person is a question posed to you. What does God want from this moment? With the very great understanding that God is not only as loyal to the other person as he is to you, even your starkest adversary, but also that the, the image of God in, in another person is an actual imminence. You are actually dealing with God because the occasion is a question presented to you by God. He, and he even goes on to say that if, the pers if someone sins against you, Christ is waiting to take that sin upon himself. Christ is going to absorb the guilt of someone else's guilty action toward you, which I think is a very valuable and perhaps overlooked insight. Um, but um, in any case, there's a, a, this beautiful sort of ethical mysticism in Calvin. And the question is always, you know, it, he, he doesn't have any kind of a sort of trench warfare mentality, you know, because you aren't, it, the point is not for you to outdo in, you know, rancor or something, the person who is rancorous toward you. The idea is to think God is present in this moment and what does God want from it, which completely transforms behavior. Um, and I think, you know, um, that's very, I mean, that is what the nature of his humanism. The utter presence of God in every human interaction. And it's not a form of, you know, of solipsism or something. Because what is true in any case for any person is true, you know, it's true on the other side of the encounter also, you know. Um, and when he talks about enjoying us, one of, the, one of the things is, you know, you sort of have the freedom to act well in a situation in which God is present and raising a question, you can, within your own resources, give a good answer, you know? That's quite lovely, I think. That was very lovely. Converted me instantly when I read it. <laughs> From Calvinism to Calvinism, but you know. <laughs> the, that's a, there's a lovely passage, those of you who are great fans of Gilead will probably know this already, where um, John Ames quotes Calvin um, about we, we are on the stage and God is our audience and it opens up the possibility that God might enjoy us. And those of you who, like me, come from an evangelical background, that's quite good to hear. God, not just through gritted teeth loving us, but enjoying our yeah. company. And, you know, in the early sections of the Institutes where Calvin talks about 
descending into yourself in order to find God. He says, you have to, to know God, you have to descend into yourself and so on. To, well, anyway. The, uh, but he goes through this list of things that are characteristic of human beings, that they solve problems in their sleep, that they make intricate inventions, that they have beautiful fingernails, you know? I mean, <laughs> this in, incredibly loving intensity that is invested in a human person in the fact of, their, of that person being the creature of God, you know? And it's, um, you know, it's in, it's, makes it, it sees us as wonderful because it sees the work that God does as wonderful, you know? Um, it's very, and, and then, of course, all of these, by extension, you know, uh, apply to anyone, to, to all encounters. Sort of pick up on one of your, your phrases, because you, um, in your book, The, the Givenness of Things. And uh, I, I love that, that title, because it, I guess it's, it's saying that, um, in a sense, we, we sort of receive the world as something given to us, rather than something we create ourselves. And I, I don't know whether you agree with this, but it seems to be one of the, the, um, the, the features of, uh, of, um, of our way of thinking about, about ourselves and our world is that we are, we are the masters of ourselves, we are the masters of the world. We, we create the world, we shape it into our being, we define it uh, ourselves. And actually that wisdom comes from, in a sense, saying there is a certain givenness to things. Um, is that what you, 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 you wanted to say in that phrase? Is that what's what it's about? Is it a, a kind of a re rejection of that, that kind of modern sense of self-definition, of self-creation, as it were? I think that we, we may talk about doing that, but we, we don't do it. In a way, we're unmaking ourselves. You know, there is no mind, there is no self, there is no, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, that, you know, assuming that we are in a created order made by an intentional God, everything is given, that's true. I think what I meant more specifically was the sort of thing that John Locke says, you know, that, not John Locke, William James, that um, you, you never know anything exhaustively and that to extrapolate from anything as if it were wholly understood creates a false model of reality. And we do this all the time, inappropriate extrapolations from very partial perception, faulty perception. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's something that I actually see over and over and over again. If we, if we could say the world is rich and complex, and I know this much about it, which does not qualify me to make categorical statements, it only, you know, invites me to observe more, you know. I think that's a much saner way to, to approach the world. I'm, I'm going to go away and think for a long time about in the beginning was the particle. <laughs> and the, the, the retelling over and over, the creation narrative, and lots and lots of different kind of language. Um, it, that idea that if uh, in the beginning there's God, in the beginning there's the particle, means that we're all interconnected. Is that, was that a deliberate echoing of the Oh, absolutely, and absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things that's characteristic of classical theology, to insist, certainly among human and, you know, human beings related to one another, which it does not say we did not act wretchedly, because we always do, you know. But nevertheless, I think there's a way in which that sense of, of universal interconnectedness was 
was precious. You know, people talking about, you know, the quintessence of dust, so on. People, classical historians, talking over and over again about, yes, we are animals, yes, from ashes we came to, and so on, dust we return. Um, that kind of profound physicality that is really saying this is what the physical world is capable of, a mind, a, you know, the, you know, the, everything that is amazing about a person. We are the quintessence of dust. And I think that, I mean, the way we talk about reality now, we do not acknowledge the fact that out of one, if you take it completely non-theologically, out of one thing that we can only describe as a sort of explosion, all comes all music, all art, you know, um, it has to be remembered. We're not, you know, the fact that we are the most extraordinary expression of what is possible does not mean that we are unlike all the other expressions of possibility. And that does seem to me to be one of those vast theological ideas that um, you can see the need for now, perhaps more than ever, when we're talking so much more about what divides us than... Exactly, yes. I mean, that, that theme of um, what divides us, what... What, what unites us, I suppose. I mean, if it's if it's true that that you see in the modern world a kind of unmaking of humanity, a sort of um, disintegration of it, would you also extend that to to to, to the idea of, of, of human community as well? I mean, again, one of the things that strikes me about your novels is you depict these um, in some ways very um, very 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 tight sort of communities that, that in these small towns in the Midwest, in the USA, and people who know know their neighbours and they. They know each other's lives, and you know the John Ames and Borton. They've known each other for years, and that sense of a real connectedness. Oh. And um, and I suppose what you know, one of the is also you know, a part of that unmaking of ourselves. Is that also an unmaking of, of community? And I suppose the other part of the question is is how do you avoid that being just simply nostalgia? Because you can look back to the 1950s and say, well, that's like you know, that was the, an era where we were all connected. We had these nice little communities. We've lost that now. Do you see that coming back in any kind of way? And how, how do you see, you know, Christian faith, Christian, this this new vision of theology remaking community? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, these. One of the things that you notice in, say, seventeenth-century theology, which I've been reading lately, is that human brilliance, in any instance, is something that is treated as universal brilliance. You know what I mean? The fact, you know, there's this huge willingness to celebrate great, you know, great acts, heroic acts, creative acts, because it's seen as enhancing the whole definition of human beings. I think we don't, now we have this kind of meager, nasty little competitive model that seems to take over so much. And so we have, we almost feel as though we have a vested interest in minimizing the, the uh, I mean, the, if, if God enjoys us, we should enjoy each other, right? You know? And, and we, ha we, we have lost the conceptual frame that allows us a truly generous uh, enjoyment of other people, I think, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that has to do with the loss of the sense of community. Do you think people are starved of that bigger, grander, theology? Well, you know, my, 
experience is with a very select group, which is young, aspiring writers, you know. Uh, but I would say yes, certainly of them, without question. And, and it's kind of sad because, I mean, we do send a fair number of our graduates to Divinity School, which is quite unusual for a graduate program like ours. But, um, but they're often disappointed because they feel as if there's something sort of condescending, pre-masticated, you know, about what they're being offered as theology. And uh, they, don't, they don't feel that it speaks to them and they don't feel that it equips them to speak to other people in many, many cases. Just a question that a bit, because I mean, obviously it's a theological institution where I'm quite interested in that question. Because <laughs> uh, I guess implicit in what you've been saying tonight, there's a bit of a critique of contemporary theology as being too narrow, too focused, too, too, just, just not having too that, soft, that big vision. Too easy. Too yeah. easy? Too easy. Yeah. It's, it's much more addressed to human inadequacies than it is to divine splendor. Okay. Yeah. So theology needs to be about divine splendor. Yes. Which it is for Calvin, of course. Yes. <laughs> Do you think also more, more reading of hard poetry would be a good thing? Yes, yes. More reading of hard everything. It's amazing. You know, I've, I did a, a lecture on Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, 17th, I mean, 18th century American theologian. And in this treatise, of, uh, treatise of relig uh, religious uh, affections, he quotes at great length, at great length, completely untypically, people that were writing in England in the 17th century, uh, you know, Puritan theology, basically. And, uh, and it's, it's very lovely, you know, it's very beautiful. And I've picked out of it all John Flavel. I don't know if anybody even knows who he is. But in any case, he's, a, he's wonderful. He's the most humanist humanist you could ever imagine. And people read, they are interested in this, they read him, and then they say, how can we get back to that? Well, read Thomas Sibbs, you know? I mean, the fact is we have a huge resource of beautiful theological thought that for some reason is set aside, like people just wouldn't do that anymore. They would not see what was beautiful or ponder what was difficult, you know? It's a condescension. But there's are from the times when theology was about God. As yes. opposed to the sort of subjective turn of modern, I guess modern forms of theology which have effectively become about our perceptions of God, which is a very yeah. different thing. But even at that, you know, there's a long tradition that goes from, I, my, I have my own way of caging time, before Shakespeare to the American 19th century, you know? And there are analyses of experience because, I mean, going back to the sort of Cartesian thing, that how anything can be known is within a mind, you know? But the, you know, they talk, there are treatises on conscience. Uh, the, the treatise on moral sentiments would be an example, you know? That there's a whole long literature of these, of these that are addressed precisely to the mind, like uh, Descartes' uh, Passions of the Soul, which actually has drawings and everything is quite, you know, a kind of biological looking, but he's doing the same thing of trying to create a model of the mind by how the mind behaves in terms of reason, will, conscience, compassion, and so on. Um, so they absolutely addressed subjectivity, but they simply understood the mind to be sacred. It's the mind in the context of God. 
the, the mind in conversation with God. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose the part of the problem is, I mean, what we see is people who actually, the minute they begin to be allowed to explore the splendor of theology, get really very excited about it. But you were talking about um, the, the antibiotics um, of, uh, of the intellect. That, and, I, and I suspect we've had a century or so of people being inoculated against thinking that that kind of hard reading um, for the glory of it is worth doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we've just got a, a real educative task, haven't we, to encourage people that, that they'll love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to show it to them first, yeah. you know. I mean, we all conspire in make, just simply making things fall out of history, fall out of conversation, you know. Uh, and there's some sort of uh, impulse to impoverish that no one's aware of, no one can rationalize, but it is very potent. And do, do you need imagination for the work of theology? Because I guess what, yeah. you, what you do, in a sense, is a kind of narrative theology in a lot of your, your, your work. But it's, it often strikes me that you, you need that sense of imagination. To imagine, for example, a concept like the kingdom of God. What would the kingdom of God look like if London, for example, was suddenly sort of um, fused with the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God came overnight, what would London look like? That's a work of imagination, in a way. Which... Calvin discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> he's, Speculation he didn't like. Didn't need, well, he simply he said, God gave us things that we can know. Yeah. And thing, there are other things we don't know. One of them is what heaven is, so on. We, we assume it's a meaningful word, a glorious reality, but we have no way of approaching it without dis, you know, distracting ourselves from our real project, which is you know, looking at what he called the shining garment in which God is revealed and concealed. Reminds me, one of the lines of one of your, I think it's John Ames, one of your characters in Gilead, he says something like this, and you'll know it, you wrote the words, but um, um, <laughs> I think it's something like, uh, I woke up this morning, I've been trying to think about heaven, but without much success. But then again, I wouldn't really have been able to understand this world if I hadn't spent seven decades wandering around in it. And it struck me that was a, in some ways a very kind of Calvinist statement, but a very kind of just, just one of those little nuggets of, 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 um, of, you know, someone just doing that simple act of thinking the mind in the presence of God, uh, seeking to understand the concept of heaven, uh, but then that sort of giving a whole new view of the world at the same time. Lovely little gem, I thought. <laughs> It must be very annoying to have your stories told back to you by people <laughs> who haven't entirely understood them. But, but um... <laughs> sorry, Graham, not you, obviously. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> what I mean your friends I'm... when you need them. Eh? What I mean is, I'm about to do the same. Because um, it seems to me that that Lila is sort of talking about heaven at the end of. Uh, I, uh, that that really made me weep. That her whole um, sort of meditation on how. Um, she has come to realise that um, that John won't be happy without her, and that's her hope of heaven. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that that is so based on the shining garment that we that both conceals and, and reveals. It's something she's come to understand. Um, is that imagination, or is that would Calvin approve of that? 
I think Calvin would think it was a very interesting problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that is one of the ways that, that a novel can explore through, through the medium of, of human consciousness one person's groping towards that which is unimaginable. I think, it, it, because as the reader, we're, we're there on that journey with her. Um, and I think it, it speaks to the heart, because it's story, in a way that a theological treatise might not. I think, oh, I think human stories, and, and I guess the, that's the point of Jesus telling parables to convey what God is like. When he was still far off, <laughs> his father saw him. And that just says volumes that, well, literally volumes of theology yes, about the yes. nature of God. In, <laughs> in that story which any human can, can read and respond to. It's true. It's also true that you can tell by reading my fiction that I have taken a great deal from reading theology. I don't think that there's any reason to privilege one above the other, really. Mm -hmm. It's whatever you can do that is, you know. We've reached the end of uh, this part of the uh, discussion. So um, we're really grateful to Jane and Catherine for their part of it, and um, Marilyn as well. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.